was the, that Ramesh Chaim Lutzato, after discussing this entire concept of oneness and the centrality of oneness and uniqueness and how the, the, um, the, the most optimum process is facilitated by this being the ultimate goal and so on and so forth. The, la- the very last thing that Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata left us with is that when people begin appreciating the exclusiveness of God, the oneness of God, the clarity of appreciating that exclusiveness of God is in fact what is going to give the people the motivation and the energy and the get up and go to elevate themselves out of their own deficiencies and want to come closer to God and emulate God and dedicate their lives to God-like ways. This, is what, this was the last thing that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzatza said. And in ending off with that concept, that with the clarity of God's exclusiveness, one is drawn to it and away from that which is deficient of that exclusiveness, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzatza made uh, a statement which was a very inspirational statement, but at the same time a very philosophical one, and that is that he began comparing he began comparing the concept of something being whole and fulfilled as opposed to something having a deficiency. And he made the following statement, something which is inherently complete and wholesome has eternity to it by definition because it is wholesome and complete and it doesn't have the limitations of any kind of a deficiency. On the other hand, something that is plagued with chisaron, something that is plagued with a lacking, with a deficiency, Rimash Chaim Litzata says, sooner or later, it has to, it has to degenerate, it has to go out of existence, it can't go on forever and ever with that thing lacking. Because if you can find something that is missing a, a very important part and it doesn't affect the ultimate life or the ultimate eternity of the thing, so then it's not really lacking it. If it can manage without it forever and ever, so then it's really not a deficiency of any important nature. If something is lacking something of an important nature, it means that one would be able to measure that lack and be able to point to something that will not be able to eventually function the same way because of the deficiency. But if a person says, I am deficient in a central organ of my body, but it will never make a difference, then it's then by, by definition you're contradicting yourself. So therefore, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says a rule, a principle, which is a very inspirational one, which Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata is going to expand today, and he's going to touch on a lot of the implications of this statement, and it's a lot of the things that Michael discussed in terms of what is Achras Hayamim and what are our attitudes of Achras Hayamim and what's going to happen in the end of times, in Mashiach's times. Essentially, the principle is Hashlemis Hunetzchi. That which is whole and complete is eternal. Vahachisarin Sofo Laheder. And that which has an, in, an integral deficiency to it, its end has to be its disappearance. Now, how long it takes to disappear is something which Rav Moshe Chaim is going to talk about. Sometimes things that should have disappeared a long time ago don't disappear because man gives it artificial life. 
by believing in it and following it and rooting for it and dedicating time, energy and resources to it. So we give a lot of life to things that otherwise would spin out of existence without us. I mean, uh, if you ever went to school, you know, there was the time when it was the baseball cards, and then from the baseball cards it was the yo-yos, and from the yo-yos it was the skelly games, and each thing had its kufa, had its its period of time, and then it went out. And, you know, and then there's a resurgence, and there's cycles, and it comes back the next time, and so on and so forth. And the, uh, essentially what Rav Chaim Lissat is saying is that chisaren has to go, something which has an integral deficiency is it's going in the direction of bittel. it's going in the direction of its own nullification by definition of what it's not because it's not it has to eventually nullify itself and this is a principle with which Rav Meshachayim Litzata states that which is chisar and that which is deficient eventually gets to the point of Heder, and Rav Chaim Lutzata is saying that a world in which one does not perceive the wholeness of Hashem is a world with chisarin, and that state of perceiving, of the perceiving the world, perceiving the world without the exclusiveness of God, to to really say that this world is worth being here is really a state of chesaron. And therefore, what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says, that though it's true that God started off his world with Helam Yechudo, with the, with the uh, concealment of God's exclusiveness, but the concealment of God's, of God's exclusiveness is a state of deficiency. And that state of deficiency cannot go on eternally, which means that eventually that state of being must leave. That has to go out. Sooner or later, the bankruptcy of a world in which God's exclusiveness is concealed has to, has to declare chapter 11 and go out of business. Sooner or later, it has to happen. Which means that in that period of time, eventually we have to march into a, a, a time whose values are more compelling, more convincing, more persuasive, and more meaningful. It has to happen with time. And this is the concept which Rav Meshachayim Litzata is going to develop this evening and is going to touch base with a lot of implications of this concept this evening. It, it's, a very, it's, a very, um, it's a very important concept in how we look at the world and... We touched on it a number of weeks ago, if you recall, when we talked about the whole Yaakov episode with climbing the ladder in the dreams. If you recall, we talked about the fact that Yaakov was afraid not so much of climbing the ladder, but being able to sustain the height on the ladder. If you recall, in other words, he saw in the dream that others went up and fell off the ladder. And when he was invited to, to climb the ladder, he was, he was afraid. He was apprehensive because he felt that the same way others climbed but were not able to stand on the heights of the ladder, so he would also not be able to. And this was considered, on Yaakov's level, it was considered a, a lack in the belief of, of what is Shlemus. Because that which is really shelling, that which is really wholesome and true, has the ability of rising and maintaining its stand on the ladder while that which is deficient will fall off the ladder because of the deficiencies that are entailed within it. 
So in every other situation, those that climbed the ladder, that represented lifestyles that had falseness or false values to them, the fall from the ladder was inherent to the fact that there were deficiencies in the, in the representation of the lifestyles. While the lifestyle that Yaakov, with God personified, which was total truth and fullness and shleimus, had within it the fiber to be able to sustain the heights and to stay there because it was a wholesome system. It was a full system. And Yaakov's disbelief that any system would be able to sustain meant that he was not completely embedded and rooted in the strength of Amos yet. And therefore, God said that he would need the, the process of learning through Gullus in order to perceive the exclusiveness of the lifestyle with God and that that lifestyle ultimately has to survive and does stand, stand on its own ground and does not necessarily have to fall just because it's standing so high. It can stand high and it can, re- and it can establish itself at that high point. We'll talk more about this as we go on. But this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Letzata really wants to get into today. And this is really a foundation of how the Jew is able to hold on. This is one of the principal foundations how a Jew as an individual or a Jew as a, as a group or as a nation, how we were able to hold on. Because on conscious or subconscious levels, the the wholesomeness of the system demands eternity. It compels an eternity to it. There's a nitzchias in it by its nature. Nitzchias is, is eternity. Let's look inside and let's see some of the words. Ramesh Chaim says it a lot better than I do. V'tavini Shairish Kolzeh and I want you really to understand the root of this remark that I just made. The remark about what? That which is deficient that which is deficient will go out of existence. Phenomenal. Beautiful. You know, Ramesh Chaim Lutzata says, he's giving an argument. Listen to the argument Ramesh Chaim Lutzata is saying. It's a very sophisticated argument. He says the following thing. When God created his world, God created his world in which that which was created, there were different levels of God's input into the world that was created. There were certain things that when God created them, God gave it all he had to make those things. And there were other things that when God created them, he didn't give it all he got. You know, there's their jobs, lahavdil, that we do. It's not really an example. But there are jobs that we do and we give it all that we got. And if we are in fact talented, and if we are in fact uh, equipped to do the job, the job will show if we gave it all that we got. On the other hand, if we do a job that we can do very well, but we don't give it all that we got because we don't care for the boss or we don't care for the, 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 the way the sun rose today or anything like that, or I found my slippers on the wrong side of the bed or anything of that nature, so then when I'll go through it and I'll make that particular thing, I'll make that particular thing, it will show the deficiency of the fact that I didn't give it all that I got when I did the job. Now, when God created his world, there were things that he gave and all he got. And there were things that he gave, didn't give all that he got. Now, on God's part, it had nothing to do with laziness or with inability. On God's part, it had to do with purposefully giving certain things more of his very essence. And other things, he gave less of all of what he's got. 
Right? If we would want to ask which thing in creation represents God creating something, God creating something with all that He is, that's the Nishama. If one would want to point to something in the world that is less than that and got, that God didn't give it all that He got, one would point to the physical existence of the human being and that was created out of a tzimtzum, right? out of a constrainment of everything that God really has. Purposefully so. God wanted such a creation that represents a constrainment of God's energies and abilities. It was on purpose. The reasons for it we're not going to go into right now. But when we talk about this created world, we talk about things that were created in the illuminated face of God and other things that were created in the concealed face of God. Now that's very Kabbalistically oriented in the, in the verbiage that I just used. But essentially what it means is that when one person faces the other person and really looks the other person in the eye, it really means that there's a transference of what I feel to the other person. I'm facing the person and I'm giving to the person not only by what I'm saying but by body language and face language and so on and so forth. I'm really facing the person. On the other hand, if I'm angry at the person or I don't care to look at the person or the person disgusts me but unfortunately I'm in the set of circumstances that I still have to communicate, we usually communicate with our backs turned or we just talk loud enough for the other person to hear, but we will, we will not face the person or give the person the privilege of looking at us and us the displeasure of looking at them. And that is considered the, the concealed face. The concealed face. So we talk about the fact that there were certain things that God created in His illuminated face, which means in a total giving, and the total giving is symbolized in God facing humanity. And then there were those things that God gave that they were necessary for the ultimate process and the ultimate goals, but they were in concealed ways, the concealed face of God. Now, there are a lot of byproducts of this. There are a lot of byproducts of this. And Rav Moshe Chaim points to it. And Rav Moshe Chaim says, when a person relates to that part of him that was created with all of what God is, the man is striving for the noble, for the, for the, for, for the finer qualities of life, for meaning in life, for morals in life, for ethics in life. And where does that striving come from? Because he's relating to that part of him which is cooking with the essence of Hashem. On the other hand, when a person relates to all of the the needs of the body isolated from an integrated life with, with spiritual living and is just relating to what can I do to make my body feel better now and what can I do tomorrow and what can I do an hour from now, then he's relating to that part of, of God's conduct which is constrained the energy of God and the constrained uh, spirituality that is his being. And when he relates to that, so then obviously all of his strivings, all of his goals, all of his mindsets are of a lesser nature. They're of a coarser nature. They are of, they are, they are of a lower level of existence. So this, the concept of these two conducts of God are, have their products in body and soul. They also have their products in how we relate. If we push the button called Neshama, so then we're asking for the... God, give me everything that you've got. And I pushed the right button because I've related to the Neshama, which was created with everything that God's got. On the other hand, if I, I push the body button, 
So then what I'm saying is I'm perfectly happy with that which God created out of a constrained energy. It's lovely. I enjoy that. And God says, fine, you enjoy that. So that's the kind of mentality and that's the kind of a life that you're going to, to work within. Right? I'm only talking about that in the sense that a person isolates physical pleasure and physical existence from spirituality. I'm not talking about a case where they're integrated with each other. So therefore, on the one hand, the neshama that was created with everything that God's got, the neshama is by its essence shalem. It's whole, it's complete, it's fulfilled. And therefore it is what? Nitzchi. It's eternal. On the other hand, the body onto itself, isolated onto itself, is not eternal. It's a chaser. Because its very creation came out of a constraint of God's energy. So it was deficient in a certain amount of energy. It is not shalem. The body onto itself is not shalem. If the body onto itself is not shalem, it will eventually erode. It will eventually slow down. It will eventually die. Now, you'll come to me with the argument, yes, but from the beginning of creation, the body was intended to live forever, and it was only a punishment that was sent the first man that he would die. The answer is very simple. That wasn't the virtue of the body that the person would live forever. That was by virtue that there was a total integration of the soul into the body. So the body received soul properties. But the property of eternity, on, if you would want the definition, where does the property of eternity come from? The property of eternity comes from shleimus. It comes from wholeness. Where is that property found within the, hum- the human being? In his neshama. Before the sin of Adam Arishan, that shleimus of the soul became totally integrated and flowed even to his physical existence, which rendered his physical also spiritual and made his physical also eternal. Right? But the body onto itself, isolated onto itself, is by its definition a product of God that doesn't have all of God in it. God didn't create it with all of himself in it. Right? So it is chaser in, in relationship to the, in relationship to the nashama. Once it's a chaser, it automatically, by its own right, has deficiency, has limitation, and eventually has to go out of existence. It can't continue functioning. This is one of the examples. Now, what is Rav Chaim Litzata saying here? Rav Chaim Litzata is saying, Shlemus lives on forever, okay, has eternity to it, and that which is deficient that which is deficient will eventually go out of existence. That was the statement that Ramesh Chaim Lutzata made prior to today. And we just reviewed it. So now Ramesh Chaim Lutzata wants to, to, to back this up with a logical argument. And he says, why don't you understand? Where is the source of eternity? Where is the source of all life? It's in God. So if I can point to something and I can say that God put his whole life into it, he put his whole essence into it, so then it carries the property of God. And God is eternal, so then that which is created that has that, that wholeness of God will also be eternal. But that which is chaser, but that which is, is, is deficient, which means that it doesn't have all of God in it, so to speak. It's only there because of God, but it doesn't have all of the property of God in it. So God is removed from it. That which God is removed from, even if it's to a small degree, is automatically deficient. If it's automatically deficient, it means it has to go out of existence. So that's what Rav Chaim Litzat is saying. Now let's look at it inside and we'll see. When we point to any deficient state, let's go over the line. When we point to any deficient state, 
Lainailad, how did that deficient state, how was that deficient state born? Lainailad, it wasn't born, it was only born by the constrainment or the concealment of God's face in creating it. Which means that God held back in the creation in order to create something of this nature. Because God didn't want to shine himself into this situation from the very outset with his entirety. That they should be full from the beginning. The opposite. And he left them with a deficiency. This is something which I myself alluded to a little bit before, and he says that God is the source of life. And the source of life is the source of good. And that which is deficient in the flow of life automatically introduces the negativity. I'm not going to go into this. This is a very, this is a very, uh, a very, very deep thing, which we're not really, it's not necessary to go into it, how he lines that up with the concept of life. But he lines it up directly with the concept of life. Now, 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 but Ramesh Chaim Latsata says it's like this. We have in front of us two states of the whole state, okay, which man will eventually get to, his neshama is potentially that whole state. And then we have the state of deficiency, which is what man is actually created in. Man is created in a deficient state. He has to reach those potentials. But in his actuality, he is a chaser today. He has deficiency today. Now, the question that comes up, and now we have to ask the question, is why on earth didn't God give us everything that he got and that we should start life off from the very, very beginning with everything. Why do we have... So the answer to that question is that God purposefully wanted us to go through the process of choice and struggle in order to grow. Right? That's what God wanted. So now let's listen to the argument. Let's listen to the argument. What would be the natural, quote-unquote, way for God to create us? Full or deficient? What would be the natural way for God to create us? Full. What is the natural way that any person functions? With what he's got or what, with what he doesn't have? When, when you, a person is asked to create an idea, to paint a picture, to build a building, what is the normal natural state for a person to give what he has and his abilities and create it? So the natural state, the natural state, the normal state of creation would be that God should create us in a way Co- totally compatible with everything that God's got. So we would be full. But So why did God go away? Why did God divert himself from a normal process of creation that he was capable of? Because he had, he had, he had, he had something to accomplish. What did he want to accomplish? He wasn't going, he wasn't writing off forever and ever that we would get there, but it was a question of process on how to get there. God wanted us to start off with deficiency so that we would have the challenge and struggle and get to the perfection and the wholesome state through our challenges and struggles. Okay? So now, so when God stands back and says, I'm not going to give it all that I got, 
What's behind that in the scheme of things? What's behind that in the plot of things? That man should never get there or that man should get there but should get there through his challenge and struggle? In other words, attached to this unnatural way of creating the person. Attached to this unnatural way of creating the person. What did God attach to it? That I'm going to cre create an unnatural state because that unnatural state will be the most productive process of, per of man's growth through challenge and struggle. That's what God attached to it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now, if that's what God attached to it, it means that when God created the unnatural state, it was the understanding that it was only being created because God wanted to have a process that would reach perfection. In other words, it wasn't as if God said, no, 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 I don't want a perfect person. I don't want a perfect world. Forget it. Let's create an imperfect world and forever and ever it's going to be imperfect. Because that, that would have been a, a, a commitment on God's part to something that is forever unnatural. God doesn't do things that are forever unnatural. God will do something that is unnatural in terms of creation if it is on a provisional basis to reach a higher goal. So this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat is saying. If we look at the phenomena of imperfection in the world, we have to understand that that's an unnatural state for God to create. If it's an unnatural state, we have to ask the question, why? The answer to that question is because God wanted a process towards perfection of challenge and struggle. So it means that if it's simultaneously with creating an unnatural state, attached to that unnatural state was already a goal and a vision and a scheme to reach the perfection. So from the moment that God started creating the imperfection, there was already the, the apparatus and the, and the desire and the, and, the hidden, and the hidden hope and wish that this would be a process that would reach the completion. Do you follow what I'm saying? So in other words, God never departed from, from a commitment to excellence, from a commitment to reach the perfection. God only departed from creating a perfect state to the extent of allowing a process to come into being. The process of challenge and struggle. But that was the only amount. To, so for that, God had to start with a provisional situation of imperfection. But there was never a departure on God's part when He created the world from a commitment of Shlemus. So therefore, at the moment that he created the imperfection and we see the imperfection and we see the deficiency, there is immediately at that moment of the creation of imperfection a call from God, this is a part of a process towards perfection. And there isn't a split second or moment, even in that, in that moment of creating the unnatural state, that God isn't committed to reaching that perfection. This is what Rav Moshechai Mitzat is saying. It's a very, very profound concept because it means that tied as it is to this unnatural state, there is always tied to it the direction of reaching the Shleimus. Do you follow what he's saying in terms of the, in terms of the goal? So there is never a departure from Shleimus. There is a departure possibly provisionally in order to create a process. That's all. But the goal always is there. And therefore, in creating the chesar, in creating the deficient state, God always has his eye that I should create it only to the extent that it is advantageous to reach the shlemus. 
but to the extent that it will be self-supporting and it will run, run counterproductive to reaching the Shlemus, God never put that into the program. So there's a very interesting thing going on here. We're talking about an unnatural state of creation, but that unnatural state of creation is from the moment that it comes into being programmed to get out of its unnatural state. So every moment of existence, the world is designed to coming one step closer, even if it's a baby step, closer to that shlemus. So if one would want to imagine this for a moment, the way to imagine this would be the following way. The way to imagine it would be that the concept of the world getting better, or what we call in Hebrew the tikkun ha'olam, this is not something that all of a sudden at a moment in history God snaps his fingers and decides, okay, we're going out of, we're going out of gear one into gear two. There is no changing of the gears. The gear is programmed to shlem us from the moment the world begins. It's programmed that way. Right? The fact that we see an unnatural creation of God is only because it requires process. But every moment the world is beckoning towards its shlemus. It's, it's urging itself on. It senses the chesarin and it's moving in that direction. There's a slow march, an indiscernible march of the world towards that shlemus because it's an unnatural state and an unnatural state wants to free itself from its unnatural state. It's, it's by its nature and by the commitment that God made to a natural state and to a shlemus state from the moment that this world is moving it's always moving in that direction. Now, let me give you an example of this and then we'll go a little bit further in. <clears throat> there is a concept which is called the concept of hischatshus. Right? What does the word hischatshus mean in English? Hischatshus means newness, freshness. Okay? Newness, freshness. It is usually attached to things that we do on a daily basis and we hope that every day we can interject into it a sense of newness because otherwise it becomes a drag and we don't give it everything that we get, got. Uh, we have this concept of hischatshus when it comes to Torah, learning Torah. Even though you got it thousands of years ago, every day it should be like it's new to you, which is a question how you do that. But there is a concept of hischatshus, which means approaching something that has been done hundreds if not thousands of times and to always find a sense of newness with it. Right? Hischatshus is a spiritual gift which requires a certain amount of man wanting it and doing things to make it happen. Okay? Hischatshus is, uh, is a very interesting thing. Where does it come from? How can I approach something that I did a hundred or a thousand times and feel a sense of newness and a sense of vibrancy with it since I did it so many times already? It's a spiritual gift. Now, the truth of the matter is that we really have the concept of hischatshus, and I'm not trying to be facetious, we really have the concept of hischatshus in terms of averis too. Okay? A person commits a certain wrong on a particular day. Let's, let's say in, in terms of immorality. Okay? On one day. Right? And he does it a couple of times and then it's not exciting anymore. Right? 
But man's mind, man's intellect and his imagination and his creativity can create a state of his chadshus, can create new schemes and new ways of doing things and do the same old stupid thing in some new way that all of a sudden it has a new flavor, mischadesh. I just made a chidush, I just made something new. So the truth of the matter is that we have this this is also true in the realms of negativity as well. It's not only true in the realms of the positive, it's true in the realms of the negative as well. But Riputna Zechreinu Rilavracha teaches us the following thing. He says, really, really, and there are a lot of ramifications to this, but he says, really, really, the power of his chachos is really something that begins only in the, on the positive side. The ability of Hischachus starts on the positive side. He says, you want to know where it comes from? You want to know the mechanism of Hischachus? The mechanism of Hischachus is because God put into the program of the world from the day that he created the world with its unnatural state that it should be going in the direction of Shlemus. So every day is in truth Hischachus. Because every day God sees it in the pro- how He programmed the world that every day He's making a contribution that will eventually reach that tikkun. So every day is new. And that's what we say in our davening. Mechadish God puts into the world His chachas because every moment and every day God programmed the world that it slowly, through everything that happens, is reaching closer and closer to Tikkun. It's reaching closer and closer to that state that God wanted for the world. So really, his the, nat- the condition of his chachus is really God's connection and God's program for the world's direction from day to day. What happens, though, is that this is a gift that's inherent in Bria, in creation. It's programmed into the creation, and it's programmed into the creation in a positive way. What happens is that man takes this power of his chachus and channels it into negative things. But where is the root of his chachus? Where is the root of creativity and feeling a sense of newness? That really comes because the world was programmed to reach a shalim. The world was not programmed to re- every day to reach a more deficient state. That's not the program of the world. That might be some people's agendas, but that's not the program of the world. The program of the world is towards shlemus. That's the program that God put into the world. That's the that's the natural touch that of his chachus. And that was intended to be where we would draw our hischachus from, right? Being in synchronization with the with the time of the world, and fulfilling and accomplishing in every moment of time the contribution of that moment of time. On the other hand, we can take that hischachus and we can employ it in the opposite direction. This is what Raputna said. I'm just using it as an example of this concept that there's this program to the world. Hine, <clears throat> let's finish the paragraph and then I'll take questions. Hine, and therefore Alkain Mishpat, And therefore we talk in our belief of a boundary and we talk about a specific deadline where that Shlemus must come out. 
It's not haphazard. It's not, it's not as if it might happen or it might never happen. There is a program that guarantees Shlemus because though God created an unnatural state, that was only because of process. But in terms of goal, God always put into the ultimate goal of the world, God put a program that reaches that Shlemus. And therefore, the concept of a deadline for this deficiency is very consistent with this. And therefore, there is a deadline. Now, what is the program for this deadline? Michael, this is where, this is where your questions come up. So God programs it. There are a couple of functions to the program. It can, it can produce the result in a number of ways. Either the world can respond to this hischatus and to this shlemus through the actions of man, number one. And these are the laws and all of the Torahs that were that he gave us this Torah of truth. Why is Lazada calling the Torah the Torah of truth? You know why? Because it's through the Torah and the behavior of the Torah that we create the natural state for the world not the unnatural state of deficiency. The natural state is the true state. And that's why he refers over here to the Torah as the Torah of Emes. The Torah deals with the true state that the world should be reaching. And that's why he makes a reference to an adjective of Emes when he refers to Torah here. And by the person living by Torah, which is a wholesome state of behavior, he internalizes eternity mitzvah mitzvah because the ultimate reward of the mitzvah is the very building of the mitzvah itself. God's giving to the person because the person has prepared himself to receive through the mitzvah. So now he can become full. The mitzvah prepares himself to be a vessel to, to, for completion. So he can become full and God can, can give him in the fullest way of giving. Which God at the beginning held back and said, you prepare the vessel and then I will put into the vessel. And it was for this reason that man from the outside was created to work to prepare the vessel. And he has the yates of the inclinations that work in both directions. And he has to deal with all kinds of deficiencies and try to overcome them. And the distance that he, he experiences when he begins on this path. It's very beautiful what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying. What Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying here is that what the Torah and the Mitzvahs do is that it prepares the person to be able to receive the whole illumination of Hashem's giving. That's what the Mitzvahs do. And by the mitzvahs preparing the person to be able to receive the entire illumination of Hashem, then the person becomes a prepared vessel that can accept and receive. And then the vessel becomes shalim. And to the extent that the vessel becomes shalim, becomes full, it becomes eternal. Right? This is the process that Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying. So one way that we can reach this shlemus is by preparing ourselves to receive. Once we prepare ourselves to receive through the mitzvahs, we can absorb into that empty vessel everything that the vessel can hold. 
Once we absorb everything that the vessel can hold, we are then shalim. Then we reach states of wholesomeness, which are states of eternity. They're compa- they're w- consi- one is consistent with the other. What is Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata touching on here? Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata is touching on here on a couple of very, very sensitive points. First of all, he's touching on the point that we have to prepare ourselves to receive. The problem isn't that there isn't what to receive. There's plenty what to receive. The question is, are we prepared to receive it? Are we prepared to absorb it? That's number one. The mitzvahs give us an ability to absorb it. That's number one. Number two, once we have the ability to absorb it, so then there is a flow from God to us because we have the ability to absorb it's like a sink. It's like any vessel. That if there's a stoppage in the vessel, what's going to happen when you put something into it? It's going to back up. Right? It's going to back up. On the other hand, if it's open, it won't back up. It'll fill. But it won't back up. And this is the concept over here. The mitzvahs give the person the ability to absorb without the stuff backing up. The person can absorb it. Once the person can absorb it, what he's slowly doing is that he's, he's becoming more shalling, which means that that is the way in which he is gaining his eternity, his nitzchias. He's creating for himself the condition that will make him eternal. Why? Because the more he brings into himself, the more eternal he becomes. Now there's a lot of ramifications to it, but that's, that's, that's what he's saying. The more I bring into myself, the more I bring into myself, the more I am. You know, the, the idea that we have is that, you know, if it's a five-quart pot, you can put five quarts of water in it and that's it and no more. So when we talk about mitzvahs, we also get that idea. There's only so much that I can absorb, so I can do so much and then I get it in. And then, it's, then, I'm, at, then I'm at capacity level of mitzvahs. I can't take any more. If I take any more, I'll bust. You know, I'll have, I'll have a spiritual hernia. But it's not like that because we're not talking about quantity or volume. But we're talking about when we're doing mitzvahs, it's not just filling a vessel, but we're talking about making the vessel. We're making the vessel and as we do the mitzvahs, we're creating the ability for the vessel to absorb. And the more mitzvahs that we do, it's not just that we're filling a vessel and then it reaches capacity. We're making the vessel. We're giving the vessel stronger and stronger walls to be able to absorb qualitatively. This is why, this is one of the deeper interpretations of when it says, schar mitzvah mitzvah, that the reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself, where it says that one mitzvah schleps another mitzvah. What does it mean? It means that the mitzvah creates the ability to to have more. When the person starts his first mitzvah, he might really be of the level that if he does more than one, he'll, he'll talk, I have a spiritual hernia. But after he does the mitzvah, the mitzvah itself creates a vessel that can contain more. And the more mitzvahs that he does, the stronger and bigger the vessel becomes. Right? That's what it's meant. Schar mitzvah mitzvah and mitzvah gareris mitzvah that the mitzvah has the quality within it that it builds the absorption for even more mitzvahs. Right? It's different than everything else. In everything else that we do, the more we do, we're, 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 we're coming to that point of capacity and inability to absorb. 
But over here, it doesn't work that way. Because what it's doing is, it's developing the capacity to absorb. It's not just absorbing, but it's developing the capacity to absorb. That's number two. And number three, and this is a very sensitive point, maybe it's not even important to touch, about, touch on over here, but the notion of, Rabbi, I don't have to do mitzvahs. I have a real good feeling in my heart about God. My religion is in my heart. And uh, I'm very spiritual. Right? And God talks to me all the time. And I really don't need mitzvahs at all. I don't see the point of it. I think it's even an insult to the quality of my relationship with God. Right? What Rav Meshachim Lutzat is pointing out over here is that the ultimate relationship with God, of God facing the person, has everything to do with man's ability to be able to absorb that which the relationship is offering. God is offering in a relationship. I have to be able to be able to deal with it. I'm sure you either have gone out or will go out with certain people that you weren't able to continue with because they were just too heavy. Or the demands in terms of the intensity of the relationship was just too much. Okay? Something of that nature. It's similar over here also. What Ramash Chaim Lasat is saying is that to really experience, to really experience Hashem's face, a person has to do a job to prepare himself to be able to absorb it. A true experience. And that there is no way of doing without preparing oneself through the mitzvahs. And that's really the function of what the mitzvahs are all about. Now, we can have all kinds of goose pimple, warm, hot rushes, cold rushes, all kinds of different things. says that happens by what I'm doing. That happens by the mitzvahs that I'm doing. The eternity that I'm creating for myself by virtue of the mitzvahs. I just saw uh, today, uh, not today, it was yesterday, somebody called me up, was was terribly disturbed by something that he read, that she read in Rav Desla's works. What did she read? So I told her, listen, let me go read it. I can't answer for the man until I read it or reread it. And I went and I read it. And what does he say? He says the following thing. And this is another, this brings out the point very clearly that, that Ramesh Chaim Lassat is talking about here. It says like this. He says that there are people that get their rewards for their mitzvahs in this world. This is an exception. This is not the rule. But there are very wicked people that get the rewards for what they did in this world. Mishalem Sainav El Panav Lahavidai, that a God pays back the wicked for the good things that they did in this world, and after that their 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 law that's the end. And then they get punished in the in the afterlife with all of the punishments. And then on the other hand we have the opposite situation. We have the situation where Tzadikim gets punished in this world and their all of their rewards are left for some later date in Olam Haba. And the question that Rav Desla poses is what is the, the justice of this kind of a system? Why is it that if the tzaddik does a mitzvah, he'll get paid in the, world, in the true world? 
And when the Russia does a mitzvah, he gets paid in the full in the world where after everything's said and done, it can only be translated into the pleasures of quarter pounders and things of that nature. But it can't be translated on spiritual levels. So what's the justice behind that? That's the question, which is uh, one of those million-dollar philosophical questions in Judaism. Well, what's the ran- And he has various answers. There's not one answer to this, but one of his answers is the following. He says the following thing. He says, if a person does mitzvahs because after everything is said and done, he has a desire in his heart to do what God wants of him. All right. So then his motivation is truly a spiritual motivation. And then when he go proceeds to, 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 to concretize this, this motivation by an act, which is Hashem's will, so he has created for himself spirituality. He can be rewarded in the next world because he has created a vessel that can absorb the spirituality of the next world. Because what was his motivation? His motivation was spiritual and he concretized that motivation with what he went ahead and did because it was God's will. So what he has done is he has prepared his vessel himself to be able to absorb spirituality because that's what he was engaged in. That's what he was busy with. On the other hand, Rav uh, Rav Desla says, the person that does the mitzvah, but does it because he wants to get a pat on the back, or does it because he wants to have a claim, or does it because he's going to get paid for it, or does it for any other ulterior motive. So what is the motivation? The motivation is something from this world. He's working on developing a kinship and an affinity with the pleasure of this world. And then he concretizes it by then going ahead and doing it. So, God would love to pay him in the next world, but he hasn't prepared a vessel that can absorb spirituality. He's prepared a vessel that can absorb more of the pleasure of this world. So God must pay him here because that's his only way of absorbing. This is what Rav says. Now, the truth of the matter is, that this has to be taken, this has to be taken uh, with a grain of salt, because Rav Dessler is by no means, Rav Dessler by no means is saying that one should not do mitzvahs, one should not do mitzvahs because because of ulterior motives, because if he does them, he's only building physical realms and physical rewards. Okay, that's not what Rav Dessler intends to say. The process always begins with ulterior motives, hopefully reaching pure motives. Okay, And the very fact that I start with ulterior motives, but I say to myself, I'll start with ulterior motives because I want to get started and I want to be in a process that will eventually reach pure motives, that itself is a quest for spirituality that will be rewarded in the next world. So Rav Dessler is not saying, Rav Dessler is not saying that the person that approaches a mitzvah with an ulterior motive because he wants to use it as a process to eventually reach purity that that person is not developing spiritually. That Rav Dessler is not saying. Rav Dessler is talking about the Russia that is not interested in doing the mitzvahs as a process towards reaching pure motives. He's doing them only for the ulterior motives. He's not doing them as a process. If you're only doing the mitzvah for the reason of an ulterior motive, so then all you have developed are vessels that can absorb physical pleasures. So you'll be rewarded in a physical way. This is what Rav Dessler says. But this brings out the point that when we're talking about reward, we're not talking about what God decides 
I am worthy of or not. It's a fait complete. When I get the reward that I get, I get the reward that I can get by virtue of what I've developed. And if I don't get it, it's because I didn't develop it in a way to be able to absorb it. So God's decision in terms of a reward is not an independent external decision that is made after my action. But the reward is the direct result of what I've done. Did I make it or didn't I make it? You know, there's an expression (coughs) that's more common on the West Coast. Did you make it happen? Did you make it happen? And that's really where it's at. By the way, Rav Dessler wasn't the original thinker on this particular answer. The Chavis Halvavis says numerous times in the duties of the heart, he says that al, al mitzvah betam nigla haschar nigla betam tzafun haschar tzafun which essentially means that if a person does a mitzvah for an obvious physical gain, so the reward is an obvious physical gain. If a person's link to the mitzvah is for a more a deeper reason, a more subtle reason, that is not measured in the realms of this world, so then the reward is a reward matzpon. So then the reward is a reward of a, of, a, of a hidden nature, of a deeper nature. This is one, the Chayvah Salvavis, in the gate of Bitachon, when he's discussing why doesn't the Torah talk about the rewards for mitzvahs. You know, that's one, again, another one of the big questions in Jewish philosophy. Why doesn't the Torah talk about spiritual rewards? So, he's, uh, so one of the answers that the Chayvah Salvavis gives, amongst about ten reasons, the Chayvah Salvavis says, he says, because one mitzvah for one person could have the spiritual reward of Olam Haba and for another person not. Because it depends upon the Tam Niglu or the Tam Matzbein. What was the motivation? What was the person's connection to it? Let's go a little bit further and then I'll take some questions. I just want to come full circle for the benefit of some of the questions that have been asked over the past weeks. Amnam, Imlo What happens if the person doesn't take up mitzvahs? and doesn't prepare the vessel to absorb, and doesn't fit into the program that reaches perfection, there's a program, but I'm not interested in the program. I don't come push the buttons. Then what happens? So Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says, Even so, God doesn't forsake his goal of revealing the exclusiveness and the wholesomeness of his of his himself. Because it is not forever that God is going to allow himself to remain concealed, his exclusiveness, his wholesomeness from the world. Ach, then what does God do? God will reign with the with with uh, with a wrath on those chotim, on those people that go away, those people that hurt their neshamas. This is a, trem- a beautiful verbiage that the Rav Meshachayim Lutzat is using. He's using which, by the way, is paraphrasing the prophet. I will reign over them with, with terror, with, the, with wrath, with a terrible wrath. But what does Rav Meshachayim Lutzat say a moment after he says that? For them, for having, for sinning, not against God, for sinning against themselves. Because if a person doesn't allow the, his neshama to develop, to become the vessel to absorb, 
What is the greatest sin that has occurred? The sin that man has perpetrated against himself. The cruelty against oneself. In fact, the Rabbeinu Yaina, the Rabbeinu Yaina says, that the Rabbeinu Yaina is talking about charata. He's talking about one of the principles of tshuva, regret, remorse, which is one of the three, where one of the three essential elements of returning to God. Regretting the past, a commitment to the future is a second, and being open, honest in a process of confession of what was it that I did that was wrong. These are the three parts. Charata has a very big problem. Regret is a very, very dangerous spiritual endeavor. Because from regret can come depression. And from regret can come apathy. And from regret can come totally giving up. I'm nothing. I'm talking nothing. Itaka did something that was horrible and disgusting and it just proves what I always maintain that I can't add up to anything anyhow. And then the charata is counterproductive because I'll never get from charata, I will never get from regret to a commitment for the future. Uh, there will be a commitment for the future. The commitment of no future. That will be the commitment. So charata is a very, very dangerous thing. And I heard from my, my Rebbe, Rav Hutna Zechreinu Levracha, that because we are spiritually weaker today, that we should not get terribly involved in charata, right? which is a whole discussion which we'll deal with a little closer to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But if one looks in the Rabbeinu Yaina, if one looks in the writings of the Rabbeinu Yaina, who is the, one of the principal authors on tshuva, the Rabbeinu Yaina, when he describes charata, has a, a beautiful description. And one of the descriptions of charata I'll quote the words, Eich ha-yisi ala nefesh ha-yikara achzari. How was I cruel to my precious neshama? Now, let's analyze that. What is the person doing in that statement? That's definitely a statement of regret. But it's a statement of regret that is built not on the weakness of man, but is built on the opposite, on the greatness of man, on the strength of man. The reason why this is so terrible is because it's really not me. And I'm hurting myself by doing this. So, if the person truly has a recognition and truly has a belief that his neshama is yikara, that his neshama is precious, so then we will not be afraid we won't be afraid that the charata will be counterproductive. Because in the moment that I am having the regret for doing the wrong thing, the regret is built on the greatness. Why am I regretting this so much? Because it's contradictory to my greatness. So simultaneously with my put-down, the, put, the meaning of the put-down, the meaning of the regret is built from the greatness. So that kind of a regret will lead to a productive commitment. Right? And that's really the earmarkings of a true of a true charata. That's the earmarkings of a productive charata. The trouble that we have is that forget about if we believe that the things that we did we are e- we can believe easier, unfortunately. It's a very sad statement. But we can believe much quicker and easier of what we are not than what we are. It's unfortunate, but that's true. It's unfortunate that it is that way. But we suffer very much from believing in what we are not, much more than what we are.
A person that is open and honest and you stop him on the street and you say, give me an honest assessment of yourself. Give me an honest assessment. I say, you know, I'm really not happy with myself. I really am disappointed about this, that, and the other thing, and so on and so forth. He'll say it with a lot more conviction than he'll say that he believes that he has a neshama that's the essence of God and that he has something that's precious and that he has something that he's hurting. We don't really believe it. And it's not... And it's, this is counterproductive because when we go out to war against anything that we have to overcome, there are two things that we have to know. We have to know the strength of the enemy, but we also have to know our own strength. If we lack either one of the two facts, we cannot be successful in, in that battle. We have to know the, success, the strength of the enemy, what is his strategy, what are his armaments, what are his powers. What are his abilities? We have to know those things because we have to be on guard. We have to be able to predict those things. We have to be able to preempt his offenses. That's one whole area. But there's another area that on the battlefield we don't forget about, but in our spiritual uh, struggles we always forget about. That we have to know our own capabilities, our own strengths. We have to be able to assess them. We have to properly assess them. There's no point in fooling ourselves. We have to know the, the strength that we have at the same time. This is why, if, I, if I'm allowed to go off again for a moment, this is why there's, there's a very profound, um, there's a portion in the Torah which deals when the Jew goes to war and he finds in the war the Eishas Yifas Torah. He finds in the war this beautiful woman who happens to be non-Jewish. It's, uh, it, was, it was practice in many of the wars that Jews had to fight in Israel that they contended with the lore of beautiful women, which were implanted there purposely in order to, to get the Jew to sin and then to get God angry at the Jew. The nations of the world understood the relationship of the, the, the battlefront to the spiritual quality, sometimes better than we did. In any case, so there's a portion of the Yifas Torah and there's an entire process there. And you're attracted to this Yifas Torah. Now, there's a possibility that this, this Yifas Torah is just, uh, just a Yetzirah, just a negative inclination that under the tests of war I've been attracted to. On the other hand, it could very well be that my attraction to this person is of a deeper nature and that there's an Ashama here and that this is a woman that has to be brought into Judaism through a process of conversion. We don't know. We don't know. And the Torah says that we go through a process that for a certain period of time she's utterly miserable and so on and so forth. And then after the 30 days and all of the physical, um, all of the physical ornaments and attractions are all gone from her, if you still love her and you still like her, so then you can deal with the process of conversion because it shows that the, the beauty lies deeper than the skin. Right. Now, this is the portion of Fastaya that's got a lot of intricacies. I'm not going to go into it all now. All right. But the commentaries on the simple level talk about are we interested in really throwing her out at the end of 30 days and we're trying to discourage her from getting into, into Kali Yisrael or are we really trying to clarify without all of the outside um, fancy things that there is really something here that belongs in, in, within the Jewish people. There's a controversy what the ultimate intention is. Be it as it may, that's all on the technical, simple level. But on the deeper level, on the level of remes, 
on the le- on the deeper level of what it hints to, we are told two very paradoxical things about the Yifas Torah. She is on the one hand the symbolization of the Yetzirah, of the negative inclination. She is on the other hand, in the interpretation of the Arachayim, she is a symbol of the Neshama. The Yifas Torah, this beautiful woman, is a symbolism of the Neshama. Okay? And according to the Ar HaChayim, one of the commentaries in the Chumash, it says the following thing, And she will cry for her father and her mother for 30 days. This is the 30-day period that I referred to before. So on the literal level, it means that she's away from her country, she's away from her parents, she's away from her old culture, and she's crying over the separation from her culture. Fine. On the deeper level, the Arachayim says, that the Yifastaya cries for its father and its mother is a reference to the Neshama, which is this beautiful woman, and it is crying for its father, which is God, and its mother, which is its membership in the Jewish people. Yerach Yamin, for 30 days, Zechaydish Elul, that's the month of Elul, the month of preparation before Rosh Hashanah. Now, what is the what is the Arachayim saying? What the Arachayim over here is saying is the following thing. What is the verse talking about? The verse is talking about war. When you're going out to war against your enemy, which on the deeper level refers the war against the negative inclination. Okay? So now it says, And in this war you come upon the knowledge of the Yafastayr. So what is the Arachayim teaching us? You have to come upon the knowledge of the lore of the negative inclination in order to be successful in the war. You also have to come upon the beauty of your neshama, the yifastayer, in order to be able to fight the war. One without the other will not lead to a successful end to the war. You need both. Right? You need both. And this is what the Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is saying in, in utter beauty that one would think that if God reigns over the person with a terrible wrath that we point a finger of cruelty at God. So the Das Tfunis says the cruelty is not God's cruelty. God's cruelty, which seems to be cruelty, is God's compassion for a person who has been cruel to himself. In other words, when we read these words, and Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says, if the person chooses through Taira Mitzvah to develop the vessel of the Neshama, fine and good. But if the person doesn't, God promises us that he's going to reign over, over us with wrath, and he's going to, quote-unquote, explain it to us. Right? Explain it to us. So one's, one, it right, right away triggers in our minds a certain amount of negative feeling. God's stuffing it down my throat. God's being ruthless. God's forcing me. God's being cruel. So Rav Meshachayim Lutzat immediately says, HaChaitim bin Avshaysam. One second, if we want to start screaming cruelty, let's put it in its right place. God has to act sometimes in very strong ways. Not against the person, but for the person, because the person has perpetrated a, the greatest crime of all against himself. Because they're sinning against their own potentials. They're sinning against their own nishamas. And then Rav Moshe Chaim says, and there's a third option. 
You know what the third option is? The third option is that they will humble themselves when they come into this process of disillusionment and punishment or punishment and they come and they do tshuva and then they regain life. Now this is very interesting. We can pass this right by. But this is very interesting. If I would have written the Sefer, I would have said there are two ways. Either you do it the right way or you do it the wrong way. Either you do the mitzvahs or you don't do the mitzvahs. If you do the mitzvahs, you develop the vessel. If you don't, God will explain it to you. And his ways of explaining it. Why is this a third? Why is this a third choice? Isn't this really part of the choice of doing mitzvahs? Why is this seen as a third? He says either it's through mitzvahs or it's through or it's through this process of chema shvucha or it's a third thing. Ki yikana levava ma'aral v'yashuvu v'yichyu. What is that supposed to mean? Isn't this third really part of the first? just took him a while to get there. Right? Why is it a third? It seems to be a third category. <coughs> It's a big discussion, but just in in a brief form, the reason why this is the reason why this is a third form is really based in the fact that chuva is really, really not a logical process. Let me explain. That doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense to do tshuva. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean by this is follows. The way the world was programmed, the way the world was programmed was that it functions and it produces and it's geared to work in the way that is consistent with the Torah. Istakal by Raisu Bara Alma means that God created the world based on a blueprint. The blueprint was the Torah. It wasn't that God created the world and then superimposed a Torah, now keep this Torah in this world. It started the other way. God decided what he wanted for man. And then he created a world in which man can function in accomplishing those things. So the world, in essence, is never in contradiction with the Torah. It is the outgrowth of everything that God wanted man to do, and then God creates a world around man to facilitate his connection to Tyre, his connection to God's will. What is no what's the chicken and what's the egg? The Tyre is the chick the egg, and the world is the chicken that comes out of it. Right? That's the that's the sequence here. Now, being that that's so <coughs> Being that that's so, and that's the program of the world, when a person goes away and doesn't do Ritzono Yisbarach, doesn't do the will of God, what he has done is not only a contradiction of his relationship to God, but it becomes a contradiction to the world in which he is implanted. He is losing his, uh, his, his integration, his blend with the world that's around him. And technically speaking, because the world is programmed to the will of Hashem, technically speaking, when the person goes away from the will of Hashem, he loses contact with the world, with the ultimate function that the world was created to serve. 
He loses the contact. It's the exact opposite of what we learn on the outside world. When we're in shul and when we're learning, we're in, in a fantasy land. And then when we close the book and we go outside, then we're going into the real world. I'm sure you've heard that. All right. The truth of the matter is right, that if you take what you've learned into the world, yes, then you're entering into a real world. But otherwise, it's the reverse. Knowing what, how you work best and what will fulfill you and what will make you happy, that's the real world. And then when you go into the world around you that entices you into everything else, that's the fantasy land. But we don't see it that way. It's very hard to see it that way. But in any case, the, the point that I want to make is that when the person is chayte, when the person sins, what the sin, when, when we talk about sin, it is not, um, it's not shoving something back into God's face. You know what it really is? What a chayt, chayt is, is tearing oneself away. Not only from God, but really, really from a, a, a healthy blend with his world and a healthy blend with his own physical body as well. He's tearing himself away. Now, if he's tearing himself away and he's torn out of his world, okay, how does he come back into the world? So the truth of the matter is that were it not for the fact that God created the gift of tshuva, the tear is uh, the tear away from the world is over. His world is over in the real sense of life, in the real sense of being integrated in his world. That's why when we call out the 13 attributes of God's mercy for forgiveness, what are the first two? Hashem, Hashem. Why do we say Hashem twice? It's spelled, by the way, yud Hey vav Hey, which is God of creation. So why do we refer to God of creation twice? So the Talmud tells us, one is the God of creation before one sins, and one is the God of creation after one sins and does tshuva. Hashem kaidim sheyechta, Hashem la'acha sheyechta. What is that supposed to mean? They're both God of creation. But the answer is very simple. The answer is that after a person does tshuva, he needs God to create a new world for him. To put him into a new world. It's a new world. The connection was torn. And now you want a new lease on life. You know, when we turn to God in davening, and we ask God, give me parnasa, give me health, give me children, give me this, give me that, and help me do tshuva. So we think it's all one list. It's re- there's a really a dramatic difference. Because everything else that we ask for a side of tshuva is with the assumption that I'm in a world. And now I'm saying, God, I am in a world, you put me here and give me the things that I need to function within it. When it comes to asking for help, that God should give us help to do tshuva, we're not asking for another item within, the, uh, within life. We're asking for life. We're asking, God, give me a connection back to life, a connection back to the world. And that's why when we learn the mitzvah of davening, we learn the mitzvah of davening from one pasuk for everything else that we ask for, and there's a totally separate pasuk, a separate verse, that we know that we can daven for tshuva. We do not learn it from the same pasuk that we learn all other davening from. All other davening we learn from the Pasik Vavadatem Hashem That's where we learn davening from. 
But when it comes to davening to help for tshuva, we do not learn it from there. Because you can't bring a proof from there. Because that's only once I'm here, I'm asking for the things that I'm entitled to have to exist. But when I'm asking for tshuva, I'm asking for life. Give me life. Give me a world that I'm already, I tore myself away from. Without a Pusik, I wouldn't know that I could ask for something like that. I need another Pusik for that. And that's why when Rav Moshe Chaim Latzata says there are three ways, either through Taira Mitzvahs or through Chema Shvucha, and then he says, It's a third category. It's a third category because what's happening over here isn't a modification in the vessel. What's happening over here is that the Baal is essentially asking for a whole new life of Neshama. A whole new life. Right. And that's why Rav Maish Chaim Lutzata puts it in a different category. It's not the same category as the, one bef- as the ones before. The one before is I got a vessel and I have to get the vessel ready. The second one is that I threw the vessel out and God is giving it back to me and telling me you're, you're going to have to deal with it. The third is a whole new thing. That's the tshuva process. That's a whole new, new thing altogether. Okay, let's stop here and I'll take some questions. There's more, but we'll take, uh, we'll take some questions now. What is the Pasuk? The, uh, the Pasuk for tshuva is Kaltisa Av... I don't have the Rebbe in front of me. The end of the Pasuk is Kach... Um, I don't have the, the Rebbe Niyanov here. Um... You'll have to ask me next week. I don't want to quote a Pasuk without qu- quoting it correctly. I don't know if it was a Pasuk, but you said that, oh my, the Shema being so precious, you, um, what was the Russian? Um, that comes from the Rabbeinu Yain. Eicha Yisi ala nefesh hayikara achzari. Is that in um, Shari Tshuva? Shari Tshuva, in the first Shari. Mm-hmm. I can tell you more. V'nitma begilula Yitzri. And I, I made it impure. Begilula Yitzri. You know what Gilula Yitzri is? It's not with the not with my actions, with the medita- with the premeditation of my inclination, mm-hmm. which is a whole subject. That uh, that the some of the worst harm that we inflict upon our neshamas doesn't come from the the rote action of the avera, but it comes from the Gilula Yitzri, from the mind and the premeditation. The, the the salivating at the mouth before the Aveira. You know, that part of it. But um, This idea of Shlemos and deficiency, I saw so clearly today on, on the subway. I was, um, there was a, a Jewish family um, surrounded by the type of people that ride the subways, like we all do. And you could just see the difference so much with a family that's um, Shomotora, the, the children, they were probably 10 or 11 years old, this was just such a wholesomeness. And the other people seemed so much um, like your metaphor stopped off, the plumbing metaphor. And I think it's interesting that it sort of parallels that simple process that God engaged in when right. he made them. Exactly. If you can give it all and you don't, you sabotage yourself. It's self-defeating. So, um, it's like a Simpson process that these people are um, doing on themselves. And it's, um, I mean, I guess with God you call it Simpson, um, and with people you call it 
is like a plumbing uh, metaphor, uh, but it, it seems very much to yeah. It usually needs a certain level to be able to see the difference to begin with, but I'll tell you the truth. Uh, a person has to be somewhere themselves in order to be able to discern the difference. Because um, the levels that we are on, we can comprehend. The levels that we're not on, or that we have absolutely no connection to, we can comprehend. Um, it's usually a healthy sign when we can at least feel a difference, even if we, can, we even if we're not yet living the whole difference. But the fact that we can feel a difference is usually a healthy sign, because I wouldn't be able to appreciate that wavelength if I wouldn't have some connection with it. So it's usually uh, it's usually a good sign. It, it seems like such a lot more the people who are very deficient and are not aware of their deficiency and. When you say that the movement forward um, in the world is indecipherable, I mean, it really is. We'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you that don't have patience, you can come to Long Island tomorrow night. We're talking that's tomorrow night's subject. But, uh, but uh, we'll be talking about it in the future. There are many, many different way, hidden ways in which Hashem is working that are not, uh, not necessarily <coughs> obvious to us, but we can explain some of them and and see that there can be a process that way. That's it's, uh, it's a very involved thing, and it has a lot to do with Gilu Yehuda, the, the process of revealing his oneness. That oneness is revealed in many, many different ways, in ways that we would believe are totally counterproductive to it, and nevertheless it's happening. I'll give you one example, okay? I'll give you one example, just to make it a little bit more plausible. <laughs> To make it more plausible, you know, the uh, <coughs> Medrash says that Esav was born. You know, Esav and Yaakov were twins. Esav was born first, and Yaakov came out holding the heel of Esav. So the Medrash says, "Come in tzaddik." How much anguish and pain did the tzaddik, referring to Yitzchak, have when he saw that? that Yaakov came out holding on the heel of Esav. Now, what on earth is that supposed to mean? So, um, if I'm not mistaken, the Medrash explained, uh, the commentaries explain the Medrash in the following way. Esav became the symbolism of a very hedonistic culture, a, a culture very much based in materialism, a culture based very much in, secular, in a secular way of life, outside of a, a concept of God. That was what Esav represented. On the other hand, Yaakov became, became a symbol of, of spirituality, of God, of those spiritual values and meanings. And what did Yitzhak see? Yitzhak saw that Esav came out first and that Yaakov came out holding on the heel of Esav. Yitzhak interpreted this to mean the following, that the world would ultimately need a process of living through every Meshagah and only on the heels of total disillusionment and having tried every part of Esav his head and his eyes and his ears and his mouth and every part of Esav being utilized and then when we finally have spent every possibility of Esav on the heels of Esav the world will finally 
investigate the Yaakov. But it will need that process. People will hang on. Now people, worlds, nations, centuries of existence will hang on to any part of Asaph that holds out a ray of hope of a world without God. And it's only when it will all fail and will all lead to disintegration or to degeneration that the world in that state will eventually be tempered into listening to a Yaakov. How much pain did that Sadiq have that it would need the whole Asav in order to be able to get to Yaakov? But if you analyze it, if you analyze it, this is a process which is not a process that God imposed upon us. It's a process that we essentially impose upon ourselves. We have a certain, and that's exact, the very next thing that Ramash Chaim Lashat is going to talk about. We have a certain tenacity and a certain stubbornness of not wanting to accept certain things on faith. We have to prove it. We have to experience it. We have to try every other option. And after having tried every other option, and we can conclusively prove that everything else fails, no, then we'll try, try Judaism. Why not? We tried everything else. Right? But I can tell you literally of scores of cases of people that came to me, Baruch Hashem, that they are holding by the heel of Esau and not by the head of Esau, and they said, Rabbi, I tried everything. It came to a point in my life where I said, I might as well try Judaism. Why not? <laughs> it's, it's not worse than anything else. And if everything, but it's only after everything else fails. Right? Now, this unfortunately is also a way of learning where Hashem allows the person to learn within the format of his own stubbornness. I had a case. I mean, it's not a case. It's, it's, it's a growing development of, a, of an individual most, well into his 60s. I mean, his appearance is totally white. And uh, he was sitting in the Monday night class the last two Monday nights in Long Island and almost from the moment that I started to the moment that I ended, he was doing nothing more than trying to hold back an outburst of tears. I didn't talk to him directly, but there were other people that were there that uh, looked less threatening than me. Uh, and engaged him in conversation, and it came out from the conversation that he comes from the Belza dynasty. He, he has Rebus Sheyichus. He comes from Rebus. And he rejected Judaism because he had felt that his father didn't get a fair shake from somebody and he resented it and so on and so forth. And because of it, he lashed out against it. He lashed out against it. And he was willing to say that though he had a difficulty and he needs to reconcile what happened, he said when he lashed out against it, he, little did he know that he was lashing out at himself. And that essentially what he was doing is the words that I said to you before. He didn't realize that he, what he really was doing was he was fighting himself. He was hurting himself. And today, he said, 
he said that Hayyim, he says, yeah, do mitzvahs, not do mitzvahs. But he is tormented to tears how he was fighting himself. But sometimes a person needs that process. When a person is in a, in a stage of resentment, in a stage of rebellion, for whatever reason, emotional reasons, psychological reasons, things didn't happen the way they were supposed to happen, and there are many, many reasons. Very often Hashem has to pull back and Hashem has to let the person learn through a process because the resentment is so deep, the barriers are so tall and so thick that unless the person comes to a very, very deep resolve that comes out of the experiences of living through the whole Esav, it will not be a complete process. Right? His tears definitely met the level of his resentment. There's no question about it. And in order for there to be that whole building process after the resentment is in place, it sometimes requires that. And that's why there is an allowance on Hashem's part that Hashem sometimes lets a situation develop even though it seems to be totally counterproductive for the ultimate result that will come in the end. Man is impatient, certainly with God, and doesn't necessarily have the patience to wait to see what seems to be counterproductive, how it really is in fact a productive system. And sometimes we don't ever see the productiveness of it. But our trust, our moon in Hashem is that everything is ultimately in a process. We need process. Hashem has relegated this world and how we grow to a process. And there are processes and we look at one part of the process and we don't appreciate one part of the process because we're only looking at one part of it. But that would be one marshal. Okay. See you next week, I hope. I'll be here, Mitzvah Shem. Uh, for the Monday or Thursday? Yeah. We had somebody on Monday that came from Brooklyn. Who came from Brooklyn on Monday? Yeah, I I'll tell you what, if you call the office tomorrow... Call the office tomorrow to remind me, and I'll find out. Because somebody from Brooklyn, somebody from Brooklyn is, is started coming to the classes. So I should call later in the day. Or? Call earlier so that we can track down the person. Uh-huh. Just remind me by calling me in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Do you make copies of it? Do you